You're listening to Absolute AI. Conversations with the humans behind artificial intelligence, where data scientists, ML researchers, startup founders, and enterprise execs talk about cutting-edge innovations and unique challenges posed by this new technological frontier. Tune in for interviews with leading experts to anticipate trends before they emerge. Hi, thanks for joining us on Absolute AI. I'm your host, Melody Travers, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Sage Wones, the co-founder and CEO of Agolo. After completing his MBA at Columbia Business School and leading multilingual engineering at Rakuten in Tokyo, Sage enjoyed a brief stint farming radish in the countryside of Hokkaido before returning home to pioneer the AI startup boom in New York City. He blended his programming and business strategy experience to launch Agolo, which has since become a trailblazer for the mainstream use of AI in finance and news organizations, and the winner of City's top business intelligence tool prize. Besides being a proud nerd and Seattle native, Sage is also an accomplished cellist, fluent Japanese speaker, and avid mountaineer. Welcome to Absolute AI Sage. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Melody. Pleasure being here. I'd like to start off with just hearing a little bit about you and your background and your journey that brought you on the show today, specifically focusing on some of the touch points that relate to your engagement with technology and artificial intelligence. Yeah. Um, to go all the way back to sort of the beginning of this, I first learned how to program at uh, University of Oregon Summer Computer Camp when I was a kid. It was one of the a few computer camps in the Northwest at that time. And so there started designing websites, which is like sort of the web 1.0 equivalent of a lemonade stand for kids. Sure. Yeah. And I I had always been programming, even through um, college. And then after college, my first job was at uh, Rakuten in in Tokyo, where I led uh, multilingual systems eventually there to be able to help them take their core e-commerce software that was dominant in Japan and replicate it throughout the world. So we started, you know, one of the first problems that they had is that um, they had to work in multiple different dialects of Chinese and then in different languages like Thai and then Portuguese, English, French, and every single time expanding the language base of the system to be able to handle these languages was a challenge. So that was my introduction to natural language processing. I moved from Rakuten to Colombia, where I brought a couple of prototypes I had developed to be able to take through the MBA program and developed a business out of them. But I honestly threw a lot of those out the window when I got to know the Data Science Institute there, and specifically Mohamed Al-Tantawi, my now co-founder, and seeing what he was doing. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was doing a PhD in NLP, specifically summarization. His first project in NLP was actually summarizing Facebook threads when he was in undergrad, I believe. Oh, nice. And that's actually stuff we do now with very different technology. But he's always had that vision that, Understanding something with a high-level summary is the evolution of, you know, document understanding. So we were able to capture that vision in founding Agolo, and we've been working on it ever since. And Columbia was actually one of our first investors because of that. Oh, that's great. Yeah. 
Okay, so a few things there. So you met your co-founder at Columbia, and he was in the research world. You were doing your MBA, so you were doing more of the business side, but you have a background in computer engineering, as you were talking about. Exactly. And I also noticed that you worked at NYC Seed for a year right before you launched Agolo. So I was wondering what you learned there and if that was sort of a boot camp in itself to get you started to pitch your own company. Absolutely. Basically, coming to business school with an engineering background is a real rude awakening because I had no idea what Excel was or anything like that. So that financially modeling and, and all of that stuff or accounting work was something I had no understanding of before that. So that was a real crash course, especially when you're surrounded by people who have been doing that their entire life coming off of Wall Street at Columbia or coming out of consulting, especially. So that was a big rude awakening. But even more than that, understanding the other side of the table with Owen Davis at NYC Seed was just incredible to see the sort of process and how they analyze these companies. It was remarkable because NYC Seed was an early stage venture fund that was partially backed by the city to be able to cultivate startups in New York. And so he saw everything from really complex patent work and water filtration, if I remember correctly, all the way to some ventures that I really massively respect that had come out of YCOM and other, you know, like ERA here in the city, some really premier incubators. And so what I learned from him was what it actually takes to be able to pass muster with a great investor like him. He has a phenomenal reputation in the field and also just was helpful for us to be able to work with him. I don't think I was the best intern, though, because I was also working on my prototypes and things like that. Right. <laughs> I got a ton out of it, very selfishly speaking, because Owen was a phenomenal mentor. Yeah. So you were really one of the pioneers of the AI startup boom in New York City. Tell me about the beginning of that time and why that felt like a really fertile ground for you to launch your own business. Well, it was just obviously the future when you actually see it working in the labs here. It was just absolutely the future. Our first pitches were all just what is AI and what is natural language processing specifically. Now that's assumed knowledge. So we can really get into how NLP is helping our clients. Like the pitch originally, you know, was what is NLP? And then it morphed into the science of summarization specifically. And now it's really about helping readers get to the point faster than ever before humanly possible by using a full end-to-end -end machine learning and NLP platform. That's been a real evolution. Where I think the only way that startups can do this by taking this huge you know, AI stack and turning it into small company problems, things that they can address with a small team and move nimbly on. So you can start with one form of summarization and then move all the way now or an abstractive summarization. So that sort of evolution and that sort of segmentation of a you know, full stack problem is at least the only way to tackle something that huge. So talk to me about some of the steps in that evolution through Agolo. As you said, I love your tagline, get to the point. It's so fitting <laughs> for a summarization company. Exactly. So tell me about your unique approach to solving this problem. You mentioned your partner was doing research in summarization, had a, had a deep educational background in this. What about summarization was exciting to you guys? And how did you begin to break down this problem, which, as you said, with NLP is a huge landscape of, I mean, language, oh my gosh, not to mention other languages. <laughs> it's just a huge field. So break down like where you started and why you wanted to enter this particular segment. If you remember, it was only like a scant five years ago, five to seven years ago, when big data was sort of the buzzword. Big data actually created a problem 
that AI can address, where the problem was, how do you actually analyze and understand all of the big data that you have? How do you take advantage or value all of this big data? The sort of big data movement, yes, your systems can handle big data, but what value does that bring you? Not much if you can't sort through it and be able to understand it at scale. So we really you know, started in that big data phase with big data. And the obvious next step for us was summarization and understanding of all of that content. Yes, you can aggregate all of the data across all of these industries now. You have access to we just ran a pilot with one of the social media companies and it was a billion documents daily. There's no way humans can sort through that. But an AI can do that at scale and much cheaper and be able to actually understand a lot of that content now. The technical barriers have mostly been crossed for a lot of these issues. So as you know, big data became the buzzword, it's just like, that's actually people highlighting a problem. The solution to that problem is something that we are uniquely capable of and have a real advantage because of our relationship with Columbia. And that is being able to, you know, help readers get to the point faster than ever before humanly possible. So talk to me about how you're applying AI and natural language processing to, first of all, the first layer that you mentioned, which is just understanding anything at all. Later, we'll get into contextualizing and creating new content. But that first barrier of understanding language? Well, the foundation that a lot of this is built on is information retrieval or search, where being able to find the relevant documents is sort of step one. And that is a very complex process unto itself. I don't mean to lessen that, but there are a lot of good systems and sources and and things that we can mess with to be able to solve that issue. But once you have the relevant documents, you create a new problem of sorting through all of them. And it's a new problem, especially in enterprise documents where you don't have that same sort of social proof or understanding that you know made PageRank or made the uh, enterprise knowledge graph or in Microsoft it's called Satori possible because you're working with a big data for an enterprise, but small data, relatively speaking. So what we can do then is be able to uh, basically go into what we call the organized layer. I try to simplify this into three different sort of non-technical terminology. things: so scan, which is essentially search, information retrieval, and aggregation layer. The organization layer, where the natural language processing and machine learning kick in to be able to cluster related content, create knowledge graphs from that content, do um, what we call IRG, which is basically semantic similarity between the different entities inside the documents and really understand what's there. And then lastly, we have several different layers of summarization to be able to create the summaries from that content. So the mantra is scan, organize, summarize. But under that, are subheadings of at least a dozen each of different machine learning processes and natural language processes that help basically understand documents on each of those levels. But the end output for the human is a summary that looks like an analyst, you know, spent day and night writing it for you from real-time data, but it's actually multiple layers of machine learning that add up to that in, you know, scanning, organizing, and then summarizing all of that content for you. And there's a ton of what we call data exhaust in there that's equally interesting for some of our clients. For example, in the scanning layer, What we found is that to be able to really break down a document to a human level understanding, you have to know when titles and paragraphs begin. That sounds like an easy problem because we recognize it every day with our eyes. But when you look at PDFs or other style of documents, a lot of those are flat. So we actually developed some really novel machine learning technology to be able to say, like, that's a headline. That's 
the first paragraph, that's a boilerplate paragraph. You don't actually need to look at the boilerplate, or this is a outlier inside of the boilerplate. So what we did was we actually found that there's a very valuable use case in accessibility across the government space uh, in compliance with Section 508 to be able to say that, you know, these are formatted in a accessibility-friendly way so that people who maybe don't have full vision can understand what's happening in the document equally. And that's a really important data exhaust. Also, the knowledge graph, what we found is that any sort of major technical institution that wants to create a search engine, whether it's from their content or from you know other content, needs to have a knowledge graph. One of our board members, Andy Jacks, was the CEO of a company called Lattice Data Systems, which was uh, sold to Apple. And they were just focused on that graph. And what we found is that there's a market but you know it's small but growing of very, very technical firms who want to have that graph created with minimal human intervention that can then benefit any sort of downstream natural language processes. Interesting. So in there, I mean, you touched on a lot of points, but how do you leverage feedback loops or how do you know that things are going well? So you have many models doing a lot of different things that you pointed to, the scan, organize, and... Summarize. Summarize. Yes. Think about SOS, Dan Organized Summarize. SOS, okay. <laughs> so yeah, talk to me about how you reify the good summarization and how do you get rid of the mistakes or mitigate that and even deal with bias as that comes into the models. The real-time continuous learning aspect has been a real breakthrough for us because some of our initial clients have the highest editorial standards, a lot of them in media to be able to read the content and then put their brand on it is a huge step for them. So what we had to do was one, we had to meet their editorial standards. And then two, we have to continuously learn as they adjust. The style guide of some of our clients is a absolute Bible for people in writing to be able to refer to. And those rules are constantly evolving based off of new societal norms and new information. For example, like gender pronouns. One of the main things that we worked on with them was actually creating a co-reference micromodel approach, which means that we can deploy it into a containerized system in a, a private environment and be able to detect the entity and then also the pronoun that refers to them. Being able to comply with the you know pious standards for that that sort of identification is absolutely necessary for us. And it's a constantly evolving area too. That actually highlights one of our key tenants. And that's an area that really differentiates us where we, like microservices, we use micro models where we can actually deploy our AI models into containerized environments, into a private area that can then learn from the client data and then create those knowledge graphs, create those summaries, create those co-reference resolutions from their data with minimal human eyes on it. That's a really important approach. Like one of the, the big terms now is sort of the big language models. That is a major game-changing evolution in natural language processing, which is uh, changing everything and has made abstractive summarization possible for us with our clients now. Major, major breakthrough. And what we found is that that's good for step one. But when we get to step two, we need to have a very focused approach and the macro model approach doesn't work for that. So that's why we really grown out our site reliability engineering team to be able to focus on this new area of micro models. And I think 
you'll see that shift hopefully in the next six months. But six months for startup land might end up being years where the world catches up with you, like we were early with the AI movement. I think we're early with micro models. But for actually solving real problems in the enterprise, the micro model approach is definitely the way to go. Absolute AI is sponsored by Inadata, a leading data engineering company. From startups to enterprise, Inadata delivers ground truth training data and customized AI services and platforms at scale. Learn more at Inadata.com. So you talked about media, and then I think the other vertical that Agolo started with was finance. Those are pretty interesting verticals to go after first. Why did you do that? And and where did you see your um, value add? How did that align most appropriately with those verticals? It's really about creating the best quality summaries that we could. And who professionally creates good summaries? It's media. That's why we started we started there. And then after that, finance. Finance actually creates more content than even some media that we work with. Really? It's fascinating to see that because every day, the junior analysts that create these rundowns of watch lists for their clients as well as their you know, stakeholders inside the institution. So while we were working with media and that you know some of them are creating 2,000 summaries a day, when we work with financial institutions, they're creating like an order of magnitude more sometimes because they're creating multiple versions of the same story for different clients and trying to get them out to them in, what, in areas that matter to them. That's why like dynamic summarization for us is really important where we can look at the same document and create multiple summaries of it for multiple stakeholders. That's a major breakthrough. But yeah, definitely medium, finance, and then government, of course, is a major area for us. And then uh, we just launched a healthcare solution in collaboration with Microsoft as well. And a little teaser of the future, we have a retail version coming out shortly too. So those are sort of the five segments where we have a customer base. Tell me about some of the work you're doing in healthcare and future looking into retail. So for healthcare, there were two big movements that happened there. One was a opportunity to work with the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy and create a solution for them that would sort through medical research and create summaries from that. That was a major breakthrough for us. It enabled and focused our vision on dynamic summarization in the private data setting to be able to create dynamic summaries for a medical audience, so expert level, using the uh, healthcare ontology, initially from the Allen Institute from AI. Now we're creating our own bootstrap from the client data, and sometimes we leverage Microsoft's as well. They have a good healthcare ontology too. What we can do is create not only a healthcare-specific search, so if they search for like ibuprofen, they can also find, you know, the Praxin is highly related to that, at least in the COVID-19 data set, and that's something that we can bootstrap, but it can also be um, utilized in uh, new sectors too. We have a major hospital network in the U.S. on their oncology division that wants to create one summary for their doctors or medical grade, you know, using the norm of language there, and then one summary for their patients in a more accessible way. So creating two summaries from the same document dynamically is increasingly important and increasingly valuable. That is a skill that I would say there are very few humans uh, even possess that. They say that a truly expert astrophysicist could teach a first grader, you know, a little bit about astrophysics. But that's a really tough thing to do. So 
talk to me about how you guys are overcoming this issue that I think all experts really face, which is even working in artificial intelligence. I mean, doing this podcast is part of it too, but, you know, breaking down super duper complex ideas. And again, language is so embedded in that, right? You have very specific terms, which can feel very exclusive to those who have never heard them before. So how do you deal with that while also translating into language that people can understand? And in your the use case you just brought up, a patient has to understand and then make a decision for themselves in their health and their lives. This is what got us so excited about this sector, because that dynamic summarization capability, like you said, is very hard for even humans to do. Good bedside manner really depends on that ability to make information understandable to people. So we've worked very closely with a major medical provider, as well as with the Microsoft teams, to be able to leverage healthcare ontologies to be able to say that if you're saying this, here's another simpler non-medical way to say it. And so that creates an ontology that we can use and then we can traverse when we're doing a summary for someone. We can say like, this is what's actually in the document, but what it translates to for people like you and me is this terminology. So we call that ontology-driven summarization. And it's, again, one of the areas that I'm really proud of that our science team has pioneered. As far as pioneering is concerned, what are some of the frontiers that you see in artificial intelligence overall? How do you see that changing industry, society, or future of work? I think that what we've seen empirically is that the best sort of solutions, at least in the present state, are machine-guided humans, not machine end-to-end processes where you can actually get better information, more actionable information from machines, and then ultimately drive a human decision. And that human decision can help drive the machine to find more related content and really continuously learn from that process. That sort of synergistic relationship is the ideal. So when everyone's scared of machines replacing jobs, you know, that's That's not the thing to worry about. The thing to worry about is like, how can I better understand how machines work so that I can work better, you know, be enhanced by them? The important thing there that we're seeing is, you know, access to information. Like there's more and more information every day. And how can you leverage that? How can you understand it? How can you traverse it at scale? The obvious answer is with natural language processing systems like ours to be able to synthesize that and make it more actionable. So I think that's a really important finding. What problem have you been most invested in solving recently? Like, well, you've been walking around, you're an entrepreneur. What's been bugging you and maybe keeping you up at night that you think, oh man, this has got to be solved? It's always been about the right data uh, for us. So getting access to that data, I wish that like PDF extraction were easier. But like when you're talking to a technical audience, sometimes they're like, forget about all the really cool AI stuff you're doing. Like, how are you reading PDFs? (laughs) Just like, it's not a part of the pitch usually, but it is an area that we're just like, we have to be really good at this. And no one's really good at this. Yeah. You know, one of the ways that Microsoft appraises was looking at our PDF extraction because we had purpose built it for NLP systems. And then Adobe just released a beta of theirs too. And uh, immediately we're like, this is not usable. They don't see the same sort of granularity of problem. They're interested in creating PDFs rather than reading them. So we see a huge advantage in being able to, you know, do that ourselves, but it's like one of the least, you know, exciting things that we do sometimes, but it's absolutely necessary. 
I mean, I think that's one of the most interesting things about so-called artificial intelligence is that a lot of the initial things that we try to do is teach a machine to do the things that humans do naturally, right? So computer vision, we're like, oh yeah, you know, you just look around and within a couple of years of life, you can pretty much identify objects and call them by name and their attributes. And you know where one object ends and another begins. And that's super easy. Turns out that's an incredibly difficult problem for machines. Exactly. And it's the same thing with language, right? Exactly right. And a PDF, you know, knowing what a title is, you know, that doesn't take very long for a human being to understand. But with a a table, for instance, like, how do you parse a table? How do you understand that? You know, what's all those squiggly lines that don't? Oh, that's a formula. Okay, what does that mean? Like all of these different attributes are difficult for a machine to understand what's so obvious after five minutes to a human being. Oh, 100%. Especially one of the major problems that we see is that context drives understanding for all of us. It's one of Muhammad's mantras. And sometimes the machine just doesn't have context. That's one of the reasons why we built in multi-document summarization as being one of our core knowledge graphs to bring in additional context. But like one of the most difficult problems that I think will persist for a while is sarcasm detection, because even humans aren't good at that. Ah. The Secret Service had a bounty on that years ago. I don't think that's an immediately solvable problem, but it's really interesting to see that with context, a human can understand sarcasm. Like if I'm looking on Twitter and it's a comedian saying something, I could say like, yes, that's sarcasm. But, you know, Twitter might still flag it and boot that comedian off their platform because if the person reading it doesn't have the context that that person is a comedian and being sarcastic, it can be interpreted as much more hostile than it's intended to be. But that sort of areas where like context is necessary to understand something is incredibly, incredibly difficult. And like context drives almost all understanding too. It's an endless field. Right. That's a cultural thing as well, right? You know, British people have very different humor than Americans, for example, even within the same language. I know you lived in Japan for a while. You're fluent in Japanese. What were some of the language cultural things that came through where you felt like, oh, I know I'm speaking Japanese, but there's like that barrier. What am I not getting through? There's a couple of different things that said. Now, they're one of the biggest things is that like the meeting before the meeting is what matters. Because like in the meeting, no one asks questions. It's a cultural thing. It's just like, you know, hierarchy is very important. So it's a top down thing, which is something we actively fight against at our company. And we encourage the tough questions. And if not, I will call them out. That was really difficult. But like the pre-meeting part is actually something to learn from, especially if you're going into a big meeting and you know a couple of the people there and they're bringing you to the seniors, you want to make sure you have that pre-meeting with everyone else to be able to go get into that. There's all sorts of cultural differences in Japan, but that was one of the ones that I found as a major learning for me, both pros as far as the pre-meeting and cons as well as like, like a good meeting is when people are asking the tough questions. So your summarization model, is it all in English or have you guys branched into other languages? Yeah, we've branched into other languages. The foundation of it was always like, this is one of the dangers of a founding engineering team where you build out the future before (laughs) it's, it's necessary. And we built it in a manner where we could easily scale the other languages. You know, Muhammad's most well published in Arabic morphology. My background is in multilingual systems. We initially charted out the company in a couple of different growth paths and definitely multilingualization was always one of them. 
And what languages have you gone after first? Has it been Japanese and Arabic? No, actually, it's been mostly based off of client pull and where we've gone with them. So it's very, very different based off of the client. Okay, so in 2014, you published an article stating that your founder role model is James Bond <laughs> because he's always prepared, yeah, yeah. <laughs> relentlessly resourceful, and utterly fearless. Yeah. Is 007 still your founder role model or has another character or superhero taken his place? You know, actually, the more that I, I thought about that, I realized that like, it's an unrealistic standard and sort of a dangerous standard to hold to. And especially as more founders have become open about their journey, you can actually hear some of the messy stuff that happens. Like James Bond, you never see him do any of the messy stuff. It always is clean and pristine and he's wearing that suit and looking great. Yeah, not even a, a piece of fuzz on his on his suit. Yeah, and if it's a piece of fuzz, <laughs> he's going to make it look better than anyone else. For some of these other things, it's, it's, it's not just startups, but the mythos sort of overtakes everything else. And James Bond is definitely a creature of, of mythos. And um, I think that especially when you look at funding rounds and exits and things like that, you see the headlines. And those headlines always look great. But what you don't see is some of the stuff that happens under the headlines. And people are now open to sharing more about that. Twitch's billion-dollar exit. I think Justin Kahn had a great series where he talked specifically about you know, how it actually was supposed to be like 1.2 or something like that. And 1.2 to 1 billion may not sound like a lot, but that's that's a life-changing, that's many orders of magnitude or many thousands of people life-changing money, If even if you spread it across all of them. It was really interesting to hear about that struggle from him and sort of what actually happened there. Because all you come away with is like, oh, they did a great job. That's amazing. And they did do a great job. And that is amazing. But it didn't probably seem like that on the inside. And uh, Satya Nadella wrote a great book in 2017, Hit Refresh, and he has a great phrase in there that I think he is a refounder in many ways. Like he refounded a company that maybe didn't even need refounding because they were doing so well, but he was able to do it at a totally another level. Like there's very few people I think that have done that. And they, like one of the phrases I really like from that book, which sticks with me, was um, leadership's job is to find the rose petals in the fields of shit. <laughs> you think about that, it's like Microsoft, like a $2 trillion company. He like, yes, if you look closely enough at anything, you see the cracks. Um, and it's leadership's job to be able to say like, yes, there are cracks, but this is the area that we can focus on, or this is the area that we can highlight. So increasingly grounded and hopefully more realistic role models in, in foundership. But I think I always will aspire to that James Bond ideal of just like walking out of an exploding building and still looking good, even though like he just <laughs> left a trail of dust behind <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Absolute AI. It was a total pleasure to talk with you today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. We make this program for listeners like you. So if you enjoyed this episode, share it with your community, write a review or drop us five stars. Every little bit helps spread the word. See you next time.